Good evening, everyone. I uh, put on this headset mic on the condition that they would turn it off while they were singing. <laughs> Otherwise, everyone would have left the room by this point in time. Um, now, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Ken. Um, I started here at WBC four weeks ago, four Sundays ago, and I just want to say thank you for your warm welcome of us. Uh, it's been really exciting to start to get to know some of you. Um, it's been great to go along to different groups uh, and be involved, and we thank you for your prayers uh, and, and pray that you would continue praying for us as we settle into to life in Wollongong and ministry here at WBC with you guys. Now, as I said this morning, uh, this, this morning, this evening, we're continuing our series in Luke chapters 10 to 12. And we've already considered some extremely well-known passages. The Good Samaritan, last week we looked at the Lord's Prayer. And tonight we've heard about Jesus casting out this demon and the responses of the crowd. It's perhaps not as, as well-known as some of the other passages, some of the other events in the Gospel, and yet it is incredibly important. So will you join with me uh, in praying, asking God to work in us by his spirit through his word. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together like this, to have your word in a language that we can easily understand. And yet we don't want to presume to think that we can just understand this by thinking hard about it. We need you. And so we recognise our dependence upon you and we ask that you would work in us, enable us to understand what it meant to those who were there and actually heard Jesus say these words and saw the event taking place, those who read of it afterwards, what it continues to mean to us now, thousands of years later. And just as importantly, we ask that you'd enable us to respond to it as we should. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, whether it's a trivia night, a game, friendly game of Trivial Pursuit at Home, or the old TV show that none of you will know, a sale of the century. Questions asking, who am I, are the bread and butter of trivia. The information starts off quite obscure, but as further facts are given, it becomes obvious, at least to some, who is the answer to the question. And so an example, who am I? Now, just, to, just here, the morning congregations were really, really intense on this and they wanted to be the first one to get the answer. So if you know the answer, just put your hand up. Don't call it out. You'll spoil it for everyone. Who am I? Born the 13th of May 1968 in Sydney. <laughs> I studied economic geography at the University of New South Wales. Mm, there's a couple of here. They were here this morning. I worked, if you weren't here this morning, I worked as the director of the New Zealand Office of Tourism and Sport from 1998 to 2000, and then as the Managing Director of Tourism Australia from 2004 to 2006. Any more hands? <laughs> There's a tentative one there. First elected to the Federal House of Representatives in 2007, I joined the front bench three years later. After the 2013 election, I became the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection, famously implementing Operation Sovereign Borders. When Malcolm Turnbull ousted Tony Abbott in 2015, I was appointed the Treasurer. Come on, there's got to be a few hands now. When Peter Dutton then challenged Malcolm Turnbull in 2018, I defeated both him and Julie Bishop to become the 30th Prime Minister of Australia. Sometimes referred to as ScoMo, 
I assume that I'm still the Prime Minister of Australia. Though I haven't looked at the news tonight to check, I am, of course, Scott Morrison. See, as the facts build up, it becomes a... Didn't you know that? Uh, He's still the Prime Minister. Um, So as the facts build up, it becomes more and more obvious who it is. If I'd stopped after the first question, no one, except those who came to the morning service, could know who I was talking about, except perhaps Mr Morrison himself and his family and some political or trivia buffs. But hopefully, by we get to the end of the questions, even those who tried to ignore politics knew exactly who I was talking about. Likewise, in Luke's Gospel, as we read or hear more and more and more about Jesus, we're supposed to recognise exactly who he is. His actions, his miracles, his teaching, they're all building up what should be an unmistakable declaration of who Jesus is. But all of a sudden, all of that seems to fall apart in this passage, raising the question we're going to look at tonight, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, in verses 14 to 16, Jesus' miracle is reported and reacted to by its observers. In verses 17 to 23, Jesus reveals the problem with all of these reactions. And then in verses 24 to 28, Jesus reveals that something much bigger is going on. It all kicks off with Jesus kicking out what verse 14 calls a demon that was mute. The immediate and undeniable reaction of Jesus, what he's done is that a man who previously had been unable to speak now can speak freely. And in response, the watching crowd is amazed. This immediate reaction is consistent with how they've reacted each time Jesus has cast out a demon, which Luke has already written of in chapters 4, 6, 8 and 9. This is, this is not a new thing. He's done it before. It's a part of his ministry. As he did with some of the prophets of old, God is confirming with miracles the message that his messenger is bringing. Mighty words are backed up with mighty actions. Now, the leadership of Israel has already responded in the past. They've already been opposed to Jesus. But in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 11, for the first time in the gospel, some in the crowd are unconvinced. But it's not, we must note, because of a question about the reality of demons. A Western sceptic of 2019 will possibly argue that we understand the science of illness better that demons are merely an ancient myth when they didn't really understand what was going on in the synapses in people's brains. Others will go to the extreme opposite, assigning every problem that happens in our lives to demons. And both, I say, are sidetracks that take the focus off what the text is prioritising. Two issues are raised. Firstly, in verse 15, Jesus is accused of receiving his authority from Beelzebul or Beelzebub, depending on your translation. Now, if you're part of a home group, you've already been given the heads up that Beelzebul in 2 Kings chapter 1 was the name of the foreign king, the foreign god of Ekron. Ekron's one of the five Philistine cities. Think worst enemy of Israel. It's a name, Beelzebub, that by Jesus' time had come to refer to Satan the prince of demons, as verse 15 adds. 
what is rightly concluded by this sceptical crowd is that there's a battle of two kingdoms taking place. This is God versus Satan, good versus evil. But in response to Jesus casting out a demon, some in the crowd conclude that Jesus is working for Satan. What we need to notice is that there's nothing obvious in Jesus' action that leads to this accusation. Jesus hasn't done anything bad, cruel, or linked to evil. He's freed someone from a demon. You'd think it'd be obvious that Jesus is on God's side. And yet some in the crowd are now ignoring the evidence. Now, it's actually worse than that. Like the political spin doctors of today, some are twisting the facts around to say the exact opposite of what should be the logical conclusion. They've called good evil. Now, secondly, and more subtly in verse 16, some sought a sign from heaven. You'd think that casting out a demon uh, would already be pretty good proof of Jesus' heavenly authority. But a bit like the Judge Gideon, these people want a further sign to confirm what had already been made clear. Our translation says, asked for a sign, but it's quite likely that they didn't even verbally express their desire for this sign. They probably accept in their minds that what Jesus has done is an impressive act of power, but they're not sure how he did it, and so they want confirmation of where Jesus' power comes from. How did he do this? As good Jews, they even could justify their hesitation. The Old Testament explicitly required them to test the prophets before accepting that a message had come from God. So who is Jesus? Well, opinion is divided, isn't it? Amazed. The work of Satan. Ah, we'll wait for more evidence. Thanks very much. And I don't think much has changed in the intervening 2,000 years, has it? It's easy today to read the Gospels and be merely amazed or to go the next step and to want to see Jesus do something similarly exciting, spectacular, things for us. In fact, if Jesus won't do a miracle for me when I request it, well, I'm not that interested in what he has to say. Is it amazement or in the end, is it self-interest? Others today uh, will say that all religions do is cause wars. Jesus doesn't bring about good. Christianity is oppressive and abusive. You guys were behind the Crusades, created the stolen generation, abused the kids that were in your care. Christianity good. All of the evidence points in the other direction. And so I'm justified in turning my back upon Jesus. Really? Others will try to sit on the fence, not opposed to Jesus, but not submitting to his authority either. They claim neutrality, waiting to make a final decision when they've been given some more convincing evidence. But will anything ever truly convince them? There are reasons for each of these responses, each of these reactions, but, but are they valid reasons? which is the focus of the second section in which Jesus reveals the problem with all of these reactions. One limitation as we observe people, as we see people do things, is that we can only guess why someone reacts the way that they do. Last year, my family went up the Sydney Tower 
uh, and posed for photos in front of the glass. I've got permission to show their kid's photo here. Some of them had no fear whatsoever of leaning against a pane of glass almost 300 metres up in the air. Now, in fact, some of them were happy to press their face up against the glass to look down uh, just in order to get a better look. I'm not sure how much difference that makes at 300 metres, but others were a little more sceptical. And some even stayed down on the ground. But is that a genuine look of fear on Josh's face? Or is Josh just teasing his sisters? What motivated him to pull this face? Was it fear? Was it teasing? How do we know? I've seen, personally, how easily glass breaks. A few have fallen off our dining table. Is it safe to trust my life or the life of my kids to a flimsy piece of glass? So doubt can be quite a reasonable reaction. But Jesus knows that the reaction to his casting out of a demon are not caused by uncertainty. Verse 17 starts with the statement, Jesus knew their thoughts. While the crowd believed their reactions can be justified, Jesus knows the true reason that they respond the way that they do. Jesus reveals the problem with their logic. Firstly, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says that a kingdom that, that is divided cannot stand. When Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton could no longer agree on who should be the boss, well, it was the beginning of the end. It was inevitable what would come out of it. When Darth Vader and the Emperor disagree, it's the end of what up until then had been a great working relationship. See, whether it's real power or a made-up empire, division inevitably leads to defeat. And Jesus points out this same common-sense conclusion that those under Satan's authority do not fight against each other. makes no sense at all for Jesus to cast out demons for any other reason than that he is opposed to Satan's kingdom. So why would anyone conclude that Jesus is working for Satan's kingdom? Based on his act, the only reason you can conclude that Jesus is working for Satan is that you'd already concluded that. It's not a misunderstanding of whose side Jesus is on. It's a refusal to accept the evidence. Some in the crowd have already decided that their life has no room in it for Jesus. And so they have to dismiss what he's done or they have to change. They have to slander Jesus or submit to him. And they choose the former. The second thing in this section, the second rebuttal in verses 19 to 20, indicates that the casting out of demons was already taking place in Jesus' day. Jesus is not the only person doing this. And Jesus asks, when your people cast out demons, by whose authority are they doing it? It's a rhetorical question because everyone in the crowd would have agreed that it was only possible by the power of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. It was the one true God alone who could overcome the power of Satan. So clearly the only reasonable conclusion to make from Jesus casting out a demon was to see it as evidence that Jesus was fighting on God's side. Jesus was establishing the kingdom of God. They say that seeing is believing 
And in this case, it certainly should have been. But their accusation and their doubts was based on an unwillingness to accept the truth about who Jesus is. They had sufficient information. They just denied its implications. Jesus knew this and he confronted them for it. The end of verse 20, Jesus definitively identifies the true meaning of what has just taken place. The casting out of a mute spirit should have made everyone realise that the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is already here. See, up until this point in Luke's gospel, all of the reference to the kingdom of God have been to its coming in the future. As Rod pointed out last week, Jesus' coronation is with a crown of thorns to to reign initially from a cross. From the perspective of chapters 1 to 10, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is still to come in the future. Yet here, even before his crucifixion, let alone his resurrection and ascension, Jesus can say that the kingdom of God is already here. If the strong man, that is Satan, can't prevent Jesus from coming and taking someone out from under his control, then clearly Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus has come to release people from Satan's kingdom bring them into the kingdom of God, which should be an incredible encouragement to us. This life can sometimes feel like evil is winning, that we're under constant attack, and perhaps you even feel like you're about to go under. But Jesus demonstrates that he is the strongest man. You are on the winning side. Now, again, not just because I have the job of coordinating home groups, but because of how helpful they can be, I can't encourage you enough to get yourself into a home group. The handbook, this great little handbook that we're studying this term, available out there at the welcome desk, helpfully points us here to Isaiah chapter 35, which gives us the background information we need to understand what is really going on. Isaiah 35 is one of many chapters in the Old Testament that told those in exile those who had been kicked out of the promised land, that God's people would look forward to the day when they would return to Zion. Zion is the prophetic name for the restored Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom of God, which will never again be overthrown or defeated. The mute shouting for joy in Isaiah 35 verse 6 was perhaps in Isaiah's day considered exaggerated language for how good things are going to be when God finally establishes his eternal kingdom. But when we come to Luke 11, it's a reality that has literally taken place. Casting out of the mute demon is a clear indicator that God has begun the restoration of his kingdom. God is fully and finally reversing the curse. And very boldly, Jesus can say not, I'm on God's side, come and join with me, but far more forcefully, you need to be on my side. If you're not with me, verse 23, you are opposed to me. If you're not on my side, then you're fighting against the kingdom of God, which I think must have been an absolutely shocking statement to the audience of Jews that were listening to Jesus say this. Everyone who first heard Jesus say these words thought that they were already members of the kingdom of God. They were Israelites, 
part of the people of God, both by nationality and by custom. But Jesus claims that membership of the kingdom of God is not based on ancestry. It's not based on behaviour or knowledge or custom or clothing or anything else. You are in or you are out depending on how you respond to Jesus. So who is Jesus? Well, he's the one to whom our response determine which kingdom we're in. Only those who acknowledge Jesus as king, who trust in his death in our place, receive citizenship of the kingdom. Jesus himself refers to others who have cast out demons, and so it's not this act in and of itself that proves the point. But when taken together with all of the evidence, the building up evidence, this act is proof that Jesus is the prophesied one, the Messiah, the rescuer that they were all waiting for. If these Jews listening to Jesus really knew their Old Testament, they could never have reacted to Jesus' act with doubt or slander or mere wonder. And I think Jesus' statement also blows out of the water today's most common responses to Jesus. So many people today still want to remain undecided. I'll decide later when I'm a little bit older. I'll hold off till after I've had a bit of fun. Or even worse still, Many want to dress up their opposition as tolerance. That's fine for you, but Jesus just doesn't work for me. Our so-called advanced society exalts its acceptance of any position. You have your truth, I have mine. But it's not modern progression. It is ancient opposition. It's a stubborn refusal to acknowledge who Jesus is. So it's not good enough to acknowledge that Jesus really lived. It's not good enough to admit that Jesus was a good man or even an incredibly powerful man. Who is Jesus? He's the one upon whom membership of the kingdom of God depends. We're either on his side or we're on Satan's side. We're either submitted to Jesus as our leader, trusting in him as our saviour, or else we are against him. It was a massive claim in the day. It is still extraordinarily exclusive, and so it rubs our society the wrong way. And in the final section, verses 24 to 28, Jesus has no problem in hammering this home. Perhaps even more than the earlier verses, verses 24 to 26, could give rise to speculation about the systematic theology of demons. How many demons can fit into one person? Does having the Holy Spirit mean that I have some kind of spiritual force field around me, protecting me from demonic harm? They're interesting questions. Now, we have to recognise that Jesus is not here primarily teaching about demons. He's talking about the clash of two kingdoms. The replacement of an unclean spirit with the Holy Spirit is a clear indicator that a change of allegiances has taken place. Someone's been rescued from the kingdom of Satan and brought in to the kingdom of God. But Jesus warns us that even at that point, there still remains a danger of an inadequate response to him. It's not enough to receive the benefits of the coming of the kingdom of God. You have to actually change teams to switch allegiances. Every year we hear of star football players that have moved from one team to another. While they played for the Sharks, they were a shark through and through. 
but offer them a little bit more money and he happily becomes a saint. As a result, he becomes a special target of his former teammates. He's seen as a traitor. And so he receives worse treatment than the rest of the opposition team. And at a spiritual level, changing kingdoms is an even bigger change with bigger consequences. So you don't leave Satan's team to go and watch from the, from the stands. If you think that way, you are destined to be crash-tackled. And ultimately, you'll be dragged back to a worse place than where you began. Nor do you leave Satan's kingdom to go and sit on the fence. Satan owns the fence. You're either playing for Jesus or you are on Satan's team. Jesus insists that our response to who he is is not mere speculation. Jesus is saying that every single one of us is a member of one of two kingdoms. We're not spectators. We have a jersey on identifying whose side we're on, and we are in the middle of the field. We're either on Satan's team or we're a traitor from Satan's team. Whose side are you on? Now, if you've come along tonight and you recognise that you are someone who has not yet joined Jesus' team or you're not really sure yet, then can I encourage you to please talk to someone tonight before you leave? Sign up for the Discover course and come along to the four weeks on Monday nights. Talk about it with the person you came with or feel free to come and grab me or Rod. We would love to discuss how to arrange a transfer and transfer season is still open. Yet even when it's been made crystal clear, still not everybody gets what Jesus is talking about. A woman in the crowd calls out, blessed is your mum who gave you birth and brought you up. Now, why people call that out, I'm not sure. And it's not so much wrong as it misses the point of what Jesus is saying here. Jewish society at the time was much less individualistic than ours is, and it almost certainly still rejoiced in its special status as God's chosen people. But repeating the correction that he gave back in chapter 8 when his mother and brothers came to him, Jesus insists that blessing is not due to family links or nationality. And we are not blessed because we know the truth or we align ourselves with a particular doctrinal position or a particular preacher. No blessing comes, verse 28, to those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessing comes to those who hear the word of God and obey it. This statement beautifully summarises much of the focus of Luke chapter 10 to 12, in fact, much of the whole gospel. At the start of the gospel, it's okay to be merely amazed by Jesus' miracles, by his teaching. It's valid early on to doubt and to ask questions. But as we've learnt more and more and more and more about Jesus, expectations get raised. It's now not enough just to know about Jesus, to know what he teaches. We must obey him. This whole section revolves around the concept of sound, around messages being sent and received. Back in 1024, Jesus tells the 72 he'd sent out that they are privileged to have heard what they've heard. The lawyer has heard that he should love his neighbour, but he can't do it. Mary sits at Jesus' feet to listen, and that is the one thing that is needed. Even the demon at the beginning of tonight's passage is specifically identified as unable to speak. 
And the woman of verse 27, literally, having raised her voice, gives her opinion. The danger being emphasised is that it's easy to hear and yet to not really hear. People are hearing Jesus' teaching, observing his miracles, even experiencing his power. And yet it's all too possible to not really receive it as it should be received. There's an expected response, a required response, the only logical response. But very unfortunately, it's not the common response. As your family heads out to church, who hasn't experienced the unhearing hearer? Get your shoes on, go to the toilet and then get in the car. We have to be gone in two minutes. Five minutes later, you go into their room and they're still playing their iPad or reading a book. And that's not even talking about my kids, that's somebody else. (laughs) Didn't you hear what I said? So there's hearing and then there's hearing. I think that we humans are in many ways the strangest thing in all of God's creation. We're told over and over that we're the, the pinnacle of God's creation, but God speaks. Let there be light. And it was. God says, let the waters separate to create seas and land, and it did. Jesus says, mute demon, get out of him. And instantly it submits. No questions asked. Whenever God speaks, obedience from every single part of his creation invariably follows. But then God says to humans, don't eat from the tree. And Adam and Eve respond, ah, yeah, about that one, God. I think there's a bunch of really good reasons why we should be allowed to eat whatever we want. We've decided that we'll actually make our own call on that one. God says, don't live like the nations. But God, we need a king. You've clearly overlooked what we really need. We'll decide what's best for us. Jesus says, recognise that membership of the kingdom depends on being on my side, gathering with me, obeying what I've taught. And many in the crowd refuse to accept what Jesus says because they refuse to accept who Jesus is. And it's not acceptable for us to point the finger saying, well, look at how badly that crowd responded. Rather, I think that we have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus to me? Not just in the theoretical sense, not merely according to history or your family tradition. Who is Jesus to me? Not just in the what I know in my head sense. What are my responses to his teaching reveal? I believe about him. We call Jesus Lord, but are all of his commands obeyed with an unquestioning urgency? We've seen Jesus pull the rug out from the self-justifying lawyer, but are we still putting up boundaries on who our neighbour is? This week I had to duck up the street to the shops to get some things. It wasn't from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I try not to think of myself as a Pharisee, but there on Borelli Street... I was confronted with the question, how does a neighbour treat the guy who's asking for a little bit of change? There's no question over whether he is my neighbour or not. Jesus has made that one clear. But did I love my neighbour as myself? Jesus spoke. I heard. But did I obey? 
We've also been reminded that prayer is an expression of our dependence on our generous, good, loving, heavenly Father. And yet have we been any more dependent upon him this week? It's been a busy week for me. I've had lots of things to do, a sermon to prepare on top of all of my jobs. And the busier I get, the harder I tend to work. So when was the last time that my extra need drove me to extra prayer, showing extra dependence on my father? Jesus spoke. I heard. Or did I? And this is where I think we need to be extra careful. Taken out of context, verse 28 could very easily be taken as a call just to try harder, hear and obey. Misunderstood, it's a command to which we'll respond by trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Clearly being on Jesus' side will mean more than knowing what he expects. Spoiler, it means that we're on the winning side. And it will be evidenced now by changed behaviour that flows out of changed status. But if we're going to receive God's blessing, if we are to hear and obey, then it won't be merely through our own efforts. The only thing that will enable us to hear and obey is if we recognise who Jesus is, the Saviour King. If we are to hear and obey, we will go from here tonight calling on Jesus, asking him to enable us by his Holy Spirit to live as he has commanded. Let's pray, asking for his help to do exactly that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us. We've read and thought about words that were written to record an event and responses that took place 2,000 years ago. And in doing so, we've heard you speak to us. So often as a parent might rebuke a child, the voice goes in one ear and out the other. May that never be so with us. May your word go in one er and then sink down deep into our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, please work in us to do your good work, to make us more and more conform to your image. Enable us each to hear and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.